Podcasts aren't the future of radio. They're the present. You are about to listen to a ministry-approved podcast. For more great audio entertainment, visit ministryofpodcasts.com. And now, your feature presentation. Spelunker didn't even know her. PaulTheBookGuy.com slash Audible and get a free book just for signing up for a free trial. Ah, Paul the Book Guy. Hello, constant readers, and welcome to episode 004 of the Paul the Book Guy show. I'm Paul Alves. Paul the Book Guy. I'm Chris Jager. Chris Jager. I'm Greg Ott. Greg Ott. And we're back for another week of books, audiobooks, audio dramas, and podcasts. And we forgot something last week, didn't we, Chris? <laughs> we all read the Adjustment Bureau, and for some reason we neglected to tell our dear listeners what the book was in fact about before we decided to uh, review it. Well, we, we forgot the synopsis at the we beginning the of our, of our segment. Either that or got lost in editing, but uh, all I know is, is that it took me three times listening to it in editing to realize, holy crap, we didn't even give a synopsis, so maybe one of us could give that synopsis now. <laughs> My pleasure, Paul. Uh, it was a short story, and it was about a uh, young man who wakes up in the morning, and on his way to work, uh, discovers that the universe uh, there's more to the universe than meets the eye. Uh, he ends up discovering that there's a uh, shadowy group of people that adjust the world around them. So he uh, encounters this world, escapes it, uh, goes back to his what he thinks is his regular life, but when he returns to the world, everything has changed slightly. And then, of course, he meets the adjuster. Uh, and then goes promises you know uh, that he'll go back to his life and not tell anybody about it. Um, returns to his life and then uh, his wife just pushes and pushes and pushes and pushes and so he has to make this decision finally in the end. You know, does he break and tell her that the world's not all that it appears to be, or can he keep his mouth shut and keep his life? Greg, did you have something to add? Nope, that's that's what I got. He's just basically out of phase. Yeah, out of he phase. was supposed to be adjusted as well, but because he, he missed, right, and, and he missed because, this phase change. Because we all had read the book or, or read the book and seen the movie, we spent most of our time last week talking about the differences between the two and never really got the synopsis. Sorry about that, folks. We're new at this. Uh, we're not, you know, great orators. We're not radio personalities. We don't even have a schedule in front of us when we do this. I mean, right. we don't even tick off a list what we're supposed to do. So... We're new at this, but we love books, and we're going to keep trying our best to make the show better every week for you. And we're trying to keep you happy, so there we go. <laughs> and Chris, how did you enjoy Jesus Christ, Vampire Hunter, my movie pick for you last week? Holy smokes, Paul. <laughs> I'm that so sorry. <laughs> has to be one of the most uh, atrocious movies I've ever seen in my life. Vampires no longer fear the sun. 
it's time to fear the Son of God! When the living dead outnumber the living, even the Messiah needs a little help. Phil Caracas is Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter. Uh, Greg and I were just watching a few minutes of it. Greg? Appallingly funny. Appallingly, appallingly funny. I would say that it would have to uh, win the award for worst use of lame. Worst use of lame and also worst kung fu scenes ever. <laughs> worst <laughs> movie ever, folks. Yeah, kung fu sequences were really. <laughs> okay. now, uh, we haven't synced together this week on on any one particular book, but uh, I know that all three of us have hold a up, couple Paul, of hold recommendations. Up, I'm, I'm not letting you off. I I watched that Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter business. Now I've got one for you. The movie's called Pontypool. 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 Uh, Bruce McDonald directed. It's a Canadian film. Uh, let's just say that uh, one of the one of the underlying or one of the over yeah one of the overriding themes of the movie is uh, words have power nonfiction what do you got this week chris my book this week is a book called blind descent now sometimes we come uh, to the table here come to the studio and we want to you know encourage each other to read our books this one i'm not sure uh I'm going to convince either of you to read this. Both of you know that I'm, I'm not averse to you know throwing myself out of a plane or you know taking a bike down a really steep hill or like clinging right. to the side. You're of the, the cliff. most likely to parkour out of the three of us. I'm not going to parkour, <laughs> but I'm probably the most likely to parkour. <laughs> I could do the hardcore parkour like you did in the office. Hardcore That's about it. parkour. So this book is adventure adventure journalism. Uh, this book is about the the race. There was indeed a race to find the deepest cave on the earth, and it happened uh, in the uh, early 2000s. Um, anybody want to make a spelunking joke? I will. Spelunker didn't even know her. There you go. Wow. <laughs> Your own setup. <laughs> My own setup. So there is, in fact, a deepest cave in the world, and a, a Russian, sorry, Ukrainian scientist by the name of, uh, let me see if I can find it, by the name of Alexander Klimchuk. Uh, discovered it, but he was racing with an American named Bill Stone. So this was an organized race. Uh, someone actually. It, well, no, it was it was a professional competition. So okay. this guy Bill Stone, an American, was convinced that the deepest cave was in Mexico, and Alexander Klimchuk was convinced that the deepest cave was in uh, the Ukraine. Uh, and there's only so much funding to go around, and these guys were basically competing for expedition dollars. Right. right. It's where you so kind of like the X Prize when they went for the space travel thing, where there was some money was put up. Who are you going to put your bet on? Right. Because right? these these expeditions are astounding. Now, are they costly? Oh, extremely costly. Now, we imagine what it's like, you know, to to ascend Everest. I mean, we're all fairly familiar with this kind of business, right? There's like fixed ropes, and there's Sherpas, and there's, you know, there's down clothing, and there's howling winds, right. and, it's and involved you have to and it's costly. Yes. Extremely complicated, costly. Now, imagine doing that in the dark. And I'm not talking like lights out dark. I'm talking biblical darkness. Dark, crammed spaces. I'm out. Oh yeah. man, the some of the stories and like I'm I'm willing to do a lot of stuff. I'm not going to be doing any super spelunking. This is crazy. These guys live on on in ledges inside the cave beside a waterfall that is making the sound equivalent to a jet engine, 
And that's the base camp. That's where you have to live 24-7 in wow. abject darkness. How deep are we talking here? Uh, they're getting down to, I think, believe the final depth of the cave was something like six kilometers. So they're not going six kilometers. The, the cave is six kilometers long, and it's going about a kilometer into the earth. So these guys are spending, basically, the, the, the point teams are spending two weeks. Two weeks. In abject darkness. In abject biblical darkness. In confined spaces as well? Frequently? Well, here's the funny thing. They're, they're, what was really interesting as well about the book was the, the characteristics of the caves. The caves in the Ukraine were, if you can imagine, vast pits that were connected by tunnels that you basically had to wriggle through like a worm. So you would wriggle through the worm to the edge of a vast pit. Yeah, I'm out again. Sorry. Again, how do you know there's another vast pit on the other end? And what happens if you have to wriggle uh, this is backwards? It. This is what they have to. This is what they have to deal with. But the the Mexican caves, uh, they were they would come upon like cave chambers that would fit like airplanes, like vast cathedrals of rock under the earth. However, the dodgy part about the Mexican caves uh, was water. They would get to the, the the end of a chamber and there would be a pool of water, and they would basically have to get into the water and see where that tube of water went. So you're diving. Was there a Starbucks there? Or? Oh my goodness! No, he, this guy Bill Stone, the American, he uh, he's a fascinating character. The guy designed and built his own rebreather. So for anybody who's in, who's uh, familiar with scuba diving, if you take a scuba diving tank down, you can get maybe half an hour out of it before you got to come back, right? Right. But this guy built a uh, a, a rebreather. So this is something that will scrub the carbon dioxide okay, out so of the re air. Okay, so recycles recycles the air. Right. He could dive for 24 hours. Wow. And he wow. built this, designed this himself. This guy has sacrificed his life, several marriages, all of his finances to the deepest cave. Like the dedication on this guy, Bill Stone, was just extraordinary. And just the technical development that was that, that drove this guy's exploration was absolutely amazing. Were either of these two expeditions fraught with failure, death? Oh, multiple deaths. But it's haunting to read. I mean, people die in these caves. People die in these expeditions regularly. So it's harrowing, harrowing stuff. Um, mostly from, I mean, eventually you get so exhausted and so disoriented being in the cave. So, so now is this a, a collection a of stories error. or is this all told from the perspective it's, of one person? Is it it's, all, it's, all from... it's a journalist okay. uh, who has, who's working with, um, you know, he's interviewed several people who've been on the expeditions. He's interviewed um, uh, both of the, uh, the cavers themselves. Um, he's just constructing the story, constructing the timeline, uh, describing the, what ended up being a competition to find sort of the deepest cave. Now, Chris, for all of our spelunking and daredevil friends who are climbing Mount Kilimanjaro right now with uh, an iPod in their ears, they might not be able to carry a hardcover up the mountain. Is there an audio version of this? Indeed, Paul, there is an audiobook version of the blind. Fantastic. James M. Tabor, the author. If you I take it that's it not the way you, you did it, though. I did what? The, you read the book, right? I read the book. Yeah, I, read I, I don't listen to books. You're the reader. I'm the reader. So uh, as, a, as, a, as a finishing note to this one, so the, the, the Ukrainians won. Uh, they happen to find, you know, the deepest cave and explore to the to the deepest extent. Um, but Bill Stone uh, refuses to be defeated. Uh, his he's promised this guy, this Bill Stone guy alone. It's almost worth reading the book just to get just experience his life. He's promised to colonize the moon by 2017. Good for him. And after reading what it's he did, it's not going to colonize itself. It's not going to colonize. After reading what he did to get to the bottom of this, you know, cave in Mexico, I would not be surprised if. If Bill Stone's pitching his tent on the moon in He's a building few more a rebreather as we speak. <laughs> right. <laughs> Fantastic. That sounds like an interesting book uh, in our non It's a very fun read, yeah. Yeah, nice. And for our audible listeners, here's a clip from the audiobook. Blind Descent. The Quest to Discover the Deepest Place on Earth. By James M. Tabor. 
Read for you by Don Leslie. Prologue As the 15th century began, we believed, absolutely, that the earth was flat. As the 21st century began, we believed, with equal certainty, that every one of the earth's great discoveries had been made. Almost a century had passed since Perry first trod the North Pole and Amundsen the South. Hillary and Norgay summited Mount Everest in 1953. Picard and Walsh dove the deepest ocean in 1960. Armstrong and Aldrin walked on the moon in 1969. We played golf and drove a dune buggy there not long after. Surely that told Discovery's death knell. But flat-earthers were wrong, and so were those who had prematurely mourned the death of discovery. When the third millennium rolled around, one last great terrestrial discovery did still await, the deepest cave on Earth, the super-cave. Extreme cave exploration is just as exciting, difficult, and deadly as any pioneering feat in mountains, oceans, polar regions, or even off-planet. When he learned about supercaves, Buzz Aldrin said, I'd thought there could be no environment as hostile as the lunar surface. No more. Thus Aldrin would not be surprised, nor should anyone be, that we stood on top of the world in 1953, but the year 2000 came and went without our having found the bottom of it. Alien, bizarre, and deadly, they most certainly are. But supercaves are not only about adventure. Bill Stone, one of the two great supercave explorers featured in this book, bristled when an interviewer for NationalGeographic.com asked how he would describe his brand of adventure. Let's first dispense with the adventure label, Stone shot back, adding that modern high-tech exploration, which is what I do, is quite different. The objective is to advance our knowledge of the frontiers by bringing back new data. Science, in other words, and indeed caves, are scientific cornucopias as well, furthering research in areas as diverse as pandemic prevention, how the Earth was formed, extraterrestrial life's origins, new petroleum reserves, and Mars missions. And yet, the search for the deepest cave on Earth is the greatest epic of discovery and adventure you've never heard of. Despite its drama, danger, and valuable contributions to science, extreme cave exploration remains largely unheralded. In part, this is because we prefer our heroes clean and beautiful. Think of our grandest exploration icon, Neil Armstrong, immaculate and pure, his nightly suit burning white against the gray moon and black space. Caving, on the other hand, is by its very nature dirty, dark, and wet. But there's something else. We've had photographs of mountaineers since the 19th century, and moving pictures of them almost as long. Good underwater footage from the 1940s exists. And we watched Neil Armstrong actually take his great first step. But for most of its long history, cave exploration remained out of our collective sight and mind. Only quite recently have sophisticated batteries and digital recording technology 
made it possible to take cameras far down into super caves, which were thousands of feet deep and many miles long. So while their mountaineering, aquanaut, and astronaut counterparts basked in the limelight, extreme expeditionary cave explorers labored in the dark, both beneath the Earth's surface and above it. In fact, the subterranean world remains the greatest geographic unknown on this planet, called the Eighth Continent by some. Mountains, ocean depths, the moon, and even Martian scapes can be, and have been, revealed and explored by humans or our robotic surrogates. Not so caves. And that was a clip of Blind Descent by James M. Tabor, and you can get it free just for signing up for a free trial by going to paulthebookeye.com audible. Up next, there's a book in this genre. Science Fiction. Now, guys, I'm only playing the science fiction jingle on this one because uh, we don't have a romance jingle yet. But uh, although it deals with time travel, this one is, to its core, a beautifully written love story. And here's the synopsis. The Time Traveler's Wife by Audrey Niefenegger. Uh, th this is a story about Claire and Henry. Uh, Claire is a, a beautiful art student, and Henry is a, um, he's a librarian. And they've known each other since Claire was six and Henry was 36, and that's when they first meet. And they get married when Claire is 22 and Henry is 30. The story is there's no... Numbers don't add up, Paul. Right, yeah, the numbers I'm don't add up. Henry has a condition in the story. This is the plot device where he becomes a time traveler. There's no machines or mad scientists. Henry has chronodisplacement disorder, and it resets his genetic clock, and he finds himself misplaced in time, uh, pulled to moments of emotional gravity in his past, present, and future. And the story is about how him and his, his wife deal with his disorder. And another interesting part about Henry's travels is when he travels through time, only he travels through time, not his hat, not his clock, uh, not his watch, I mean, not his shirt, underwear, pants, or shoes. So Henry, at a young age, learns how to break into stores and steal clothing and get clothed as quickly as he can, because you can understand if you all of a sudden get zapped back to 1973 and you're in the middle of Times Square, naked, number one, Learn how to pick locks. Number two, learn how to get clothing as quickly as possible before you get arrested, or you're going to spend all your time traveling time in jail. This is a chromosomal disorder that drops him back through time. Right. He so, gets attracted to major points in his life. It's a love story? And it's a love story. So uh, love and time travel. Right. So he, he, it's a story of him and his wife and how they deal with meeting each other out of order. They're told by whose point of view? Told, interesting enough, told from Excellent both points of views. Both and points of I view. highly recommend on this one, if you're going to get the audiobook, and for some reason there are two audiobooks, one of them is written by a single reader and he does a great job, but for another three extra dollars on, I think, I, uh, Audible in this case does not have the version I'm going to recommend. It's, you're looking for the one published in 2005. It's three dollars more than the single reader, but there's William Hope and Laurel Lefkow do a fantastic job because the book is, is broken up sort of in journal entries where Henry will tell his from his point of view and uh, Claire will tell from so her point of view. So having the gender separated journal right. readings now, really uh, would add to the... Uh, yes. Now the there's still some falsetto uh, coming, work coming from the male reader we'll let because that go. when Henry yeah. is recalling Claire speaking, 
it's still the same reader. But they break the book up in chapters, and, and it just goes back and forth, and it really adds to the story. And no, it's not an audio drama, but it, it really adds to the thing. And it's worth it. If you're, gonna, if you're in for $23, go in for $26 and, and get that version. Here's my question for you, Paul. Sure. Uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. As good or better? Uh, different. 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 Okay. Okay. Uh, this, like I said, it's a romance at its core. It's a beautiful love story. Uh, Eternal Sunshine thing. of the Spotless Mind. I, I dug it for the for the love story. You dug it for the love story. I, I also it dug it good. for the time it felt travel. Authentic. Like uh, he Henry does get into some spots. There is some action going on here. Like guy shows up naked. He's got to dash into a barn or you know pick a lock and get into a clothing store and you know get some clothing on. Not always his prime choice of clothing, but uh, there are some interesting uh, events that happen. There is some action in this. It's not just a love story. I think it's the kind of book that a husband and wife can both enjoy from. Different perspectives. Sci-fi romance. Sci-fi romance. I give this one a big thumbs up. If either one of you guys is willing to give it a try, uh, maybe we can talk about it again. You tweak my interest. Definitely. There you go. It's what we do here, Paul the Book Guy podcast. Uh, Paul, I'm on the Audible site, and I see two versions that are both read by a male and a female, one by Fred Berman and Phoebe Stoll, and the other by William Hope and Laurel Leftcow. Oh, that, that's great to hear, because I was checking last night, and I, for the life of me, I couldn't find it. Yeah, the abridged version gets a much lower rating at two stars, where there's the unabridged version, which is 17 hours. Uh, gets an average of 4.2. I, I would definitely go with the unabridged version with the two readers. We uh, always, let's we play a always clip. recommend, we always, the, we always recommend the, the unabridged. Even Absolutely. the tower, we recommend it unabridged. Uh, let, let's play a clip from, from that, uh, well, which apparently, thank you, Greg, is available on both Audible and iTunes. How does it feel? How does it feel? Sometimes it feels as though your attention has wandered for just an instant. Then with a start, you realize that the book you were holding, the red plaid cotton shirt with white buttons, the favorite black jeans and the maroon socks with an almost hole in one heel, the living room, the about-to-whistle tea kettle in the kitchen, all of these have vanished. You were standing, naked as a jaybird, up to your ankles in ice water in a ditch along an unidentified rural route. You wait a minute to see if maybe you'll just snap right back to your book, your apartment, etc., after about five minutes of swearing and shivering and hoping to hell you can just disappear, you start walking in any direction, which will eventually yield a farmhouse where you have the option of stealing or explaining. Stealing will sometimes land you in jail, but explaining is more tedious and time-consuming and involves lying anyway and also sometimes results in being hauled off to jail. So what the hell? I appear from nowhere, naked. How can I explain? I have never been able to carry anything with me. No clothes, no money, no ID. I spend most of my sojourns acquiring clothing and trying to hide. I hate to be where Claire is not. And yet, I am always going, and she cannot follow. Saturday, October 26, 1991. Henry is 28. Claire is 20. The library is cool and smells like carpet cleaner, although all I can see is marble. I sign the visitor's log, Claire Abshire, Special Collections. The room is quiet and crowded, full of solid, heavy tables piled with books and surrounded by readers. Chicago autumn morning light shines through the tall windows. I approach the desk and collect a stack of call slips. 
I'm writing a paper for an art history class. My research topic is the Kelmscott Press Chaucer. I look up the book itself and fill out a call slip for it. But I also want to read about papermaking at Kelmscott. The catalog is confusing. I go back to the desk to ask for help. As I explain to the woman what I am trying to find, she glances over my shoulder at someone passing behind me. Perhaps Mr. DeTamble can help you, she says. I turn, prepared to start explaining again, and find myself face to face with Henry. I am speechless. Here is Henry, calm, clothed, younger than I have ever seen him. Henry is working at the Newberry Library, standing in front of me in the present. Here and now. I am jubilant. Henry is looking at me patiently, uncertain but polite. Is there something I can help you with? He asks. Henry! I can barely refrain from throwing my arms around him. Coming up next, a book in this genre. Mystery. Now, Greg, this is one that you finished this week, and Chris has also read the book. I've watched the, the earlier version of the movie, and uh, what, what title was that, Greg? Yeah, we already discussed this one. That's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I did get through it. I tried to get through it as quickly as I could, but uh, I don't get as much reading time as I do uh, audio listening time. Uh, I loved it. I loved it. The only complaint I have so far is that uh, because of Mr. Chris's uh, description of it last time, I was turning every page waiting for some sort of uh, cave. <laughs> I was waiting for this story to go into a cave into a snow-filled no there was no cave. there was no, no snow-filled there is in fact cave. no snow-filled ass cave that was just sort of the the feeling the sentiment that I that I'd sort of had from reading the book where that was the it was grim and dark lots and of snow and lots Sweden. of snow right and, yeah okay so the basic synopsis of this one is we've got a, a newspaper publisher a, a magazine publisher a investigative reporter and he through hooks and crooks uh, becomes part of a, an investigation on a disappearance of a young lady from the 1940s and funded by her billionaire uncle uncle right and funded by her family under the guise of writing a uh, an autobiography of family, the, of history. family history and it goes from there it's, it uh, eventually does pick up your right you it's need to get about twisted family it's a twisted family yeah and not to give too much away of course we don't want to go into the you know the details of it get into the last two three pages but I the last 250 pages of this were just I was just flipping through these things and there were some now pages. was this a page turner for you or a page swiper how are you uh, I was it? this is the one that I, I had actual paper Wow. Yeah. I do have uh, I do, do have friends in, in high places who are able to... Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> well, most of you guys know that I'm usually reading a book and, uh, you know, that's at the bedside table and then I've got usually one uh, in the bathroom. Bathroom Bible. And I've got one in the car that I listen to on the way to work. Right. So this is where I finished The Dra Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I'm part of the way through the next one, The Girl Who Played With Fire. That was going to be my next question. Are you continuing on with the series? Absolutely, yeah. I'm, I'm abandoning. I'm dropping. Oh. So you like I, I like the characters. I'm, I'm interested. Quick story. My mother finished all three, and now she's asking me which ones. I've recommended uh, The Time Traveler's Wife to her as her next book. But uh, she said that the, the following two books do delve more into the Elizabeth Salander uh, 
character and, and give her more background, which is something that I think that they left out of the first book. They left, I think they left it kind of as a whole, her, her, her history as a whole. And you do want to find out more about her. She is an interesting character. Now, just from watching the original movie in Swedish with English subtitles, she she does seem like a very a fascinating character. Can anybody explain to me uh, why there was a Swedish movie already, and now we're doing a North American version? Well, uh, the the book was written in Swedish and translated. Right. The the one I I, I realized movie, it was a Swedish book, but the they made a I Swedish watched, movie. Yes, the yeah, movie I watched was a lower budget. Uh, it was all in Swedish with English subtitles, so I figure Hollywood wants to to bring out an all English, uh, you know, throw a couple more million dollars at it and more, bigger explosions and of course and there's two more books in the series so they've got a franchise running already. Right, right. They've, they've got a franchise going here. They do have a franchise <sighs> player in, wow. in Daniel Craig. So, I mean, he's, oh, he's no bankable. Daniel Craig's been yeah, you know, and there was, uh, that's the thing I liked about this is, is I was able to go through here and here in this book and I saw Daniel Craig and, uh, you know, I think that he can hold this franchise. Uh, he made a believable character out of Lundqvist. Okay, so we've got a Swedish film, we've got an American film. Really all I care about is that we've got a Karen O. Trent Reznor collaboration <laughs> out of this deal. Yeah. They're saying that this is going to be the feel-bad movie of the Christmas season, so... Snow-filled-ass cave. <laughs> Had to get it now, in now, now, one easy way for, for the folks at home, the constant readers, to figure out if they might want to delve into this whole series, uh, if you have a Netflix account, the movie, that's where I watched it, so it'll be a free, you know, uh, tryout for you. It's an hour and 40 minutes. This, the, the subtitles works very well. Check it out. If you like it, maybe you might want to dive into this book that Greg uh, really enjoyed. Well, you've watched the movie now. Would you, re would you watch the, uh, the new one coming out in December? I think I'll, I'll probably join you two in reading the book at some point before watching the movie. I'd rather not. Well, what uh, I'm thinking is do I, do I go and watch the movie now? Because I enjoyed the book. Would I go and watch the movie now? Are we going to pull a Game of Thrones here where I'm going to go watch the TV series twice I, I, and read the book? I see. It might be too, an overload. Yeah. Of, am uh, I going to get too much dragon tattoo? tattoo? I'd, say, I'd say don't waste your time in the book. Yeah. Go straight for the movie. If you've seen the movie already and right. if you liked the Swedish movie, eh, check out the... Uh, I didn't really find anything you know, that it's great about the book. It's very linear. Okay. I just want to say there's okay, not a very lot... linear. Excellent it's very linear. It doesn't uh, now. I'm going to contrast this with some other things, like say, for instance, a Dan Brown book, where there's a lot of things that are going on in the character's head that you have to visualize. There's not a lot of visualization here. It's very factual. It's it's bang bang bang. It could almost have been it, written it in point form. It lends itself to a movie. It lends itself very well to a movie. It's almost like uh, we were talking about George R. R. Martin before. It could this could be basically a screenplay. Okay, I don't think that writers should should approach their craft hoping to end up with a screenplay. I would. I think there's a difference between books and screenplays. Well, quite often there's also a big difference in the paycheck between one and the other. Yeah. Now, I, now, I understand that a, a good book stands on its own and never has to be made into a movie. That's never, my point. Or never should be point. made into a movie. Yeah. Like Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. <laughs> uh, should never be made into a movie. One of these days, Paul, we're going we're gonna to have a go with that. We are, we are. Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Hi, I'm Kimmy Alexander creator of the Guardian series, about to take off any minute. And you're listening to Paul, the book guy. Hi, this is Scott Brick, audiobook narrator and chief cook and bottle watcher at scottbrickpresents.com. And you're listening to Paul, the book guy. Paulie, I see you're reading A Day in the Life of America. Uh, would you care to please carefully open the uh, front cover there? That's an awfully big book there. That's a huge... This, I don't think you're going to get all the way through this. Ooh, oh, that's, that's smart. 
That is really smart. Uh, I know it's an audio podcast, folks, but uh, this is a gigantic book. Uh, when you open it up, uh, it's been carved out to accommodate an iPad or iPad 2 uh, and the uh, Did you charging have the cable. cable. Did you have the custom made? This is uh, an item from uh, some of the people who, uh, some of our constant readers who go to the site often have seen the ad at the top. It says uh, free hollow books. Now, free hollow books is not even a sponsor. A hollow book. I what? just love what uh, uh, Jimbo, what Jimmy is doing down in the States uh, so much. And we had a free advertising spot uh, that I just filled it with, with Jimbo's uh, uh, ad for freehollowbooks.com. Uh, if you go to freehollowbooks.com, they're all one-of-a-kind items. And uh, you can look through, and there's different books that have been hollowed out to so that you can place something inside them. Now, this is... This is something I can carry on the subway or down the street with my iPad in it and uh, without uh, much chance of Cleverly it being stolen from concealed. Me. Cleverly concealed. I can sit there reading this book on the subway and no one's going to yank it out of my hands. Uh, and it's just a great way to transport it. But they, they sell all kinds. You can go look there and they're all one of a kind. As soon as you buy one of those books, it's gone forever. And, and Jimmy's been really nice uh, as far as any requests I've made for certain titles He's not only accommodated, he's gone out and found the titles for me and, and carved them the way I want. Great work, Jimmy. Freehollowbooks.com, not a sponsor. <laughs> like we said in episode one about 10 times, we're not shilling. <laughs> this is not a sponsor. Uh, love the work. That's Go really to, neat. That'd make a great, really great gift. Make a great gift. Pick. Uh, he has a lot of names, like uh, Jessica, Frank, Jim, whatever. Uh, books that have that name prominently displayed on the, on the title. So if you have a friend named Frank, you can go find a, a book, etc. Oh, do they yeah. always have to be Frank? No. <laughs> well, you have to post a, a picture of this on your Twitter. Uh, you know great. what? Good job. Yes, I will put a, post a picture of this on uh, at the paulthebookguy.com slash show notes for this episode 004. Excellent. All right, guys, I've got another book recommendation for both of you and for all the constant readers at home. I pulled this one out of my uh, previously read Book Mountain. Uh, this is Blackout by Connie Willis. And let me give you the uh, synopsis straight, straight off the back cover kind of thing. What genre are we in, Paul? We are in, uh, once again, I'm going to keep the theme this week of time travel. We are once again in science fiction. Nice. It's also a historical fiction because a lot of the uh, tales in the, in the past in this book are all through Connie Willis's diligent research and having worked with people uh, from the time period, people actually went through these events. Let me give you the quick synopsis here. Oxford in 2060 is a chaotic place. Scores of time-traveling historians are being sent into the past to destinations including the American Civil War and the attack on the World Trade Center. Michael Davies is prepping to go to Pearl Harbor. Merope Ward is coping with a bunch of brats from these 1940 evacuees and trying to talk her thesis advisor, Mr. Dunworthy, into letting her go to VE Day. Polly Churchill's next assignment will be as a shop girl in the middle of London's Blitz. And that's where most of the, uh, the story takes place. And it's actually really interesting. I've always wanted to read more about the London Blitz. Uh, and 17-year-old Colin Templer, who has a major crush on Polly, is determined to go to the Crusades so that he can catch up to her in age because he's a lot younger than her. So he wants to spend some time at a different time and then meet her again when he's 
you know, closer to her age. So temporarily <laughs> you can adjust your age. Right. So like if, if you go away for 10 years, I come back, I come back to my time, you'd be 10 years older. Right. So he's trying to, you know, get up closer in age to Paul. Interesting concept. Got great crash in her. But now the time travel lab is suddenly canceling assignments for no apparent reason and switching around everyone's schedules. And when Michael, Merope and Polly finally do get to World War II, things just get worse. From there, they face air raids, blackouts, unexploded bombs, dive bombing stukas, rationing shrapnel, V1s, and two of the most incorrigible children in all of history, to say nothing of a growing feeling that not only their assignments, but the war in history itself are spiraling out of control. Because suddenly, the once reliable mechanisms of time travel are showing significant glitches, and our heroes are beginning to question their most firmly held belief that no historian can possibly change the past. So what Connie Willis does in, in, in this uh, novel is, is use time travel as a plot device and, and this whole uh, time-traveling historian thing to bring us back uh, to the London Blitz. And like I said, it's well-researched. A lot of the events that happened in the novel did happen in London. It's interesting to see how the British uh, fed the Germans misinformation by sending them the wrong times, printing in the newspaper, that this bomb exploded at the church at four o'clock instead of one when it actually exploded. So the Germans would think that the bomb, you know, the, the first bomb they launched at one actually landed wrong. So they, they completely befuddled the Germans with math and, and uh, the placement of these bombs. Uh, just seeing these people go through this war, uh, the, the stiff upper lip of the British in, in London, uh, it's well done. And, and she wraps it in an interesting story about these uh, time traveling historians. I have a little clip for you guys. Here's, here's a clip from Audible, uh, Blackout by Connie Willis. The sea grew rougher and it began to rain. Mike hunched his shoulders against it, shivering. Hardy didn't even notice. You've no idea how it feels to sit and wait for days, not knowing if anyone's coming for you or if they'll be in time, not even knowing if anyone knows you're there. The night and Hardy's voice went on and on. The wind picked up, blowing the rain and the spray right into their faces, but Mike barely felt it. He was too exhausted to hold on to the railing, even held up as he was by the mass of soldiers. Our sergeant tried to send a more signal with his pocket torch, but Conyers said it was no use, that Hitler had already invaded and there was no one to come. That was the worst, sitting there thinking England might not be there any longer. Oh, I say. Look, it's getting light out. It was. The sky lightened to charcoal and then to grey. Now we'll be able to see where we are, Hardy said. So will the Germans, Mike thought. But there was no one else on the wide expanse of slate grey water. He scanned the waves, looking for a periscope, for the wake of a torpedo. It was odd, Hardy droned on. I could bear the thought of being captured or killed so long as England was still there, but I say, look... He unwedged his hand to point at a smudge of lighter grey against the grey horizon. Aren't those the white cliffs of Dover? They were. I'll finally be where I've been trying to get for the last three days, Mike thought. Talk about taking the long way around. But at least now I know where the small craft docked. And he wouldn't have any trouble getting access to them, or to the men coming back from Dunkirk. It had just never occurred to him he'd be one of them. They were pulling into the harbour, manoeuvring their way through the maze of boats, arriving, loading, setting out. Dear old England, Hardy said, I never thought I'd see her again, and I wouldn't have if it weren't for you. For me, Mike said, and your boat. I'd completely given up hope when I saw your signal light. Mike jerked his head around sharply. 
Signal light? Hardy nodded. I saw it weaving about out there on the water, and I thought, that's a boat. The flashlight I made Jonathan shine on the propeller, Mike thought. He saw the light from it when Jonathan was searching for me in the water. If I hadn't seen it, I'd still be back on that beach with those Stukas. It saved my life. I saved his life, Mike thought sickly as the commander guided the Lady Jane in toward the wharf. He wasn't supposed to have been rescued. We have injured aboard, the commander shouted to the sailor, tying them up to the dock. Yes, sir, the sailor said, and took off down the wharf. Jonathan rigged a gangway. The soldiers began stumbling off the boat. Do you happen to know how one goes about finding one's unit? Hardy asked. I wonder where I'll be sent next. North Africa, Mike thought. But you aren't supposed to be there. You were supposed to have been killed on that beach or captured by the Germans. Now, once again, my pet peeve with Audible sometimes is that the clips don't reflect the book. And uh, they probably could have picked a better clip there. But that was uh, Mike, one of the historians, accidentally gets caught up in a sea battle that he shouldn't be in. And uh, out of the kindness of his heart, saves the life of a soldier. And he's really worried at this point that he's changed history. He's not supposed, they're supposed to just watch. And in, in that scene, he just saved someone. And he's worried that this soldier, who's going to get shipped out to North Africa, may change the course of the war. Uh, and there's a lot of events like that in, in the story. Uh, supposedly, you can't change history. But these historians quickly find that maybe they're having more effect on the world when they go to the past than they thought they did. So more of a butterfly effect sort of thing? Right, exactly. At the onset of the book, they find that they can do whatever the hell they want, and no matter what happens, time is the same. So they're only going back to witness events, to record them uh, for historical purposes. They're coming back from 2060 and visiting all kinds of times, even though the book focuses on, uh, on the Blitz. Now, I remember when you were reading this, you were ecstatic about all these uh, little ways that the English were fudging with the Germans' brains. And I, I just remember how excited you were reading this. So I, I'm glad that you brought this up in the podcast. I, you, learn, it's, it's, you learn so much about the Blitz and, and how the Londoners coped with everything. Uh, they would party through air raids, you know, or, or they, they literally would have a, a lady come out on stage wearing a funny, you know, costume and saying, hey, it's bomb time. And people would just, you know, order another wine and head to the shelters and dance and put on plays in the shelters and, and just the way that they coped with uh, this bombardment from these uh, flying uh, uh, flying bombs or they didn't call them fly, flying uh, V-bombs. Right, the V-bombs which at the time was, uh, was, it was a jet. It was like a jet bomb. Flying jet. A jet. They yeah, have no was, idea what this thing was. The, the, a missile was unheard of back then and the Germans put a bomb on top of a, of a, rocket. a flying plane. Yeah, right, a rocket. Jet engine, yeah. And it's historically accurate. Uh, she spent a lot of time with uh, historically accurate, but right, to serve but the purpose of the story, right? To serve the purpose of fiction, but she spent a lot of time with uh, survivors of the Blitz, so people in their eighties and nineties, and got a lot of the little quirky things that happen in the book actually came from real events. People actually tell them, "Well, I lost my newspaper, and this happened, and that happened," and she worked them into the story. Uh, actually, if if you've finished the book or if uh, you're interested in the book. Audible also has an interesting, uh, for free, uh, conversation with uh, Connie Willis and Carrie Vaughn, and a couple other conversations where she talks about the research on this book. What was the uh, what was the focus of the book, Paul? Was it more on the, the the historical period of the Blitz, or was it more on the the mechanism of the time travel, or is there a is there a moral? The uh, focus is definitely this, it's fish or? out of water. Like you said, there's only uh, there's only couple, so many plots. Right, fish out of water. Definitely fish out of water. Nice. Uh, this is actually many fish out of water, and uh, they. 
they focus on the Blitz and, and the events in, in World War II. So they're all, all, there's like three or four of them stuck in the same time period. And uh, so there's, the, there's the, a mechanism in the story, Chris, where they, uh, uh, they can load history into your brain, sort of like zap you right. with information. But they only give you like two months worth. So now you you or you memorize uh, two months worth of bombings in London, so you know exactly can't be at that store on Friday at three o'clock because a right. bomb's gonna fall. Right. But then they get stuck there, so they end up at a point where they're just like all the other Londoners and have no clue when the next bomb's gonna fall. It, it, it's there's a lot of action in it. You, you learn a lot about the London Blitz if you're interested at all in that, uh, which I was, and I did learn a lot. And uh, so it's gonna be more an historical fiction book than it is a science fiction book. Absolutely. For, for readers. If, okay. if you're into the okay. history of World War II. I'm going to ask because this is usually what uh, I get into, but how is this going to be translated into movie if, if possible? Uh, I, you know what? I can definitely see this uh, translating into a movie. Hey, Greg is the books on film and television guy. Yes, and uh, I can see it happening. Uh, there is a sequel to this called uh, Black. It was all clear. All clear is the second book. So warning, there uh, does kind of, the ending kind of does leave you hanging. Um, but luckily, this one is clearly marked on the cover. Uh, you know, this is part one of a two thing. But uh, I can see it translating the film very well. Lots of special effects, explosions. Coming up next, we have... Books on film and television. All right, we've got a lot of things that uh, came up this week in uh, Comic-Con, which is the annual comic book showcase in San Diego. Uh, first, we've got uh, the Spider-Man, the new Spider-Man trailer by Sony Pictures. It's coming out in 2012. Really interesting little thing. Um, a lot of the uh, comic book grognards are going to really like the fact that uh, they. I'm pretty sure they very deliberately put in a shot of him uh, using his homemade web, web slingers. But, uh, it looks good. And, and like I said, I like the casting on this one, and it looks very exciting. I they like did, that his parents make an appearance in this trailer. His parents, that's exactly what I was going to say. The parents make an appearance, so it, it goes a little bit further back. And again, this is a reboot of the series. And This we is were, a reboot of a reboot. I'm getting a little bit tired of this one. Right. No, we were discussing this today because this, is, this relates really well into the Avengers that we're going to talk about as well. Sony Pictures owns the rights to the Spider-Man film rights and they had a, a, a recurring clause in there that said that they had to use them every, what was it, two, three years? Every so often. Every so often. There's, there's a litigated amount of time. And if not, the, the rights will go back to the Marvel film house, Marvel Studios. So they, they deliberately have to use it even if they just throw out a piece of turd. Got a bash. Got a bash. Got a bash. And that is why, again, some people... We, i got to register gotabesh.com. We should, yeah. Let's yes. do that. Let's do that. Uh, but that's why it's why he's not a... Avenger. An Avenger. I thought for sure that Avengers was DC. No, nope. no, no, no. No, okay, fine. DC's Corrected. equivalent Corrected. would be the Justice League oh. or the Super Friends as Super they were Friends. on, Friends, on yes. Sunday morning Super television. Super Friends Incorporated, the two, the Wonder Twins, the Justice League... Typically, all right, all right, all right, all right. So, Superman will never We're be. We're nerding a... out here. We're nerding out. We're nerding out. Let's moving along. <laughs> and the last one we have is from an author by the name of PC Cast, who's famous for her writing with her daughter. Uh, she does a series of teen novels called The uh, House of Night. Okay, so what's that about? And I so, no so idea. what they're going to what they're going to do is she's going to be uh, assisting them in in uh, bringing an, an art book to. <laughs> How many fucking times is your iPhone going to go off, Paul, before we have to cancel this and start over? So they're going to be bringing a, a new series uh, that's going to be uh, it's going to be behind the scenes in her second book. They, she has a novel, uh, a series of novels, The House of Night. The 
the comic book is going to be the behind the scenes in this. You really have to bring me up to speed here. Yeah, the I'm House, lost here. The House of Night is a book, and it's going to have a behind-the-scenes it's a, it's comic a, book. It's a young adult novel series. Young adult novel series. Okay. So now Dark Horse is bringing a comic book that's going to be set in the time span in the second novel. Please, with the Dark Horse young adult novel series deals with... Help me out here. With vampires. Vampires. Huh? Did I have to guess? <laughs> no, you didn't have Obviously, to guess. Obviously, I didn't. I, I was giving them the benefit of the doubt on that one. <laughs> <laughs> if it's teens right about now, oh, it has to be vampires. Bloody vampires. Yes, vampires everywhere. All right, we've also got... Um, Jesus Christ, Vampire Hunter. That's right. <laughs> the origin of everything. That's right, vampire. the original. Going back to Marvel and uh, more specifically, <laughs> some of their, some great work done by their legal studio or their legal uh, teams. They had a little bit of a flip uh, or a flop when their, uh, their Easter egg. I know, most of you guys know that at the end of Marvel movies, they have an Easter egg, which usually is a, a teaser for the next Marvel property coming up. For, and, and for the last little while, they've been teasing the Avengers. Right. Uh, or or Avenger, the Avenger characters. So... This this Friday's release of Captain America: The First Avenger is no different, or as it's known in Iraq, or as it's known, a douche douchebag with, with a shield. shield. Right. Sorry, sorry. No, <laughs> it's made... one line. We just like saying it. It's, uh... um, so what happens is uh, somebody had a pot cam. They took a, a video of that uh, little Easter egg and they leaked it out onto the uh, internet. People went nuts. Uh, it basically shows the Avengers together for the first time. Nice. And uh, Samuel L. Jackson telling everybody, uh, you're up, which gave, uh, in this particular clip, uh, lots of applause. Uh, of course, uh, all the people who were at this pre-screening were likely nerds anyways, so I mean, they just geeked out and started screaming. Uh, but Marvel went nuts and took this thing down in everywhere in record fashion. Uh, it's back up now because um, uh, the movie is out as we speak, but for about three, four days, it was big news. I, I got to say, Marvel's done this promotion right where they brought out each character individually as a blockbuster, multi-hundreds-of-millions-of-dollar movie, added a little Easter egg at the end, and now is assembling the Avengers. That's the line from the, from the comic book, is assemble the Avengers. It'll probably be a, a line spoken by Samuel L. Jackson that'll make nerds everywhere rejoice. And I, I'm going to call it right now, the Avengers movie is going to break Harry Potter's record from this last weekend. I'm having trouble caring. I'm having real uh, trouble okay, caring. Well, I'm going to I'm going to go with another one about these Easter eggs. You're having a hard about time. About Easter eggs about the Avengers. All right. Well, just like one last the, story. The 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 overly wrought lead up to this Avengers thing has just turned me sour on it. Okay. Um, might be overhyped. Okay. Might be overhyped. That's I'm, okay. Over-hyped. I'm going to go with underhyped at this so point in time. Call I am, me the dissent, the dissenting factor Avengers. here. Okay, quick story, though, about these Easter eggs. Recently, my friend uh, Teresa the Librarian and I went to go see X-Men First Class, fantastic movie, and we stayed right to the end, and we were watching all these people leave, and we are like, don't you guys know? Don't you guys know? And then the, the theater staff came in, and basically there was no way for them to convince us that there wasn't going to be an Easter egg. This is the first Marvel movie that I've seen in years that hasn't had an Easter egg at the end, and I was so disappointed. Wow. Oh. But even they said, hey, if we had walked in and said there's no Easter egg, there's no way they would have been able to convince us. By, by the way, Greg, when is Teresa the librarian going to join us here on the podcast? Uh, a lot of people I'm have said there's way too much testosterone in the room. We need to add some estrogen to the uh, mix here. I'm working here. on it. I'm working on it. Good stuff. Hope to see you soon, Teresa. And finally, so a little bit of sad news. 
as reported here on the podcast, uh, Ron Howard was having difficulty with some of the uh, some of the financing for his Dark Tower series by Stephen King, and he did have a very ambitious um, project set out: three movies and a television series. Unfortunately, Universal was not able to commit to the entire budget, and it has been dropped officially. I I'm not concerned about this. Uh... So many uh, movie projects go through 9, 10, 11 iterations in script writing before they get approved. And sometimes, like Peter Jackson was not going to do The Hobbit. They went through another two or three different people and, and they then came, went back to him. And they came back, so right. maybe it was a, it's a little bit ambitious. Maybe uh, someone else will pick it up. Right. This is actually the second time that this uh, series has been uh, gone through this, this phase of, of um, appropriation, I guess. J.J. Uh, Abrams had tried to do this before. So... Uh, you know, hopefully this does. Hopefully, when this does get done, it gets done properly. It sounds like Ron Hard Howard had a very grand vision for it, and this is another movie that we were talking about before, where it it has a lot of things going on in brain, a lot of in brain things that are going to. There's require, a lot of special you know, effects. Needs a lot of special this. effects to bring it to life properly. Table discussion. I don't think that it's an awful thing when a a great book series doesn't make it to film the or fact a great that it, book the like fact that Ayn it's Rand's. a great book like <laughs> thank you paul that the fact shocked. that it's a that it's a great book doesn't necessarily mean that it needs three movies and a television series this is not breaking my heart if the dark tower no. never makes it to television but, but this one does television won't suffer how does it let itself to film? I'm gonna, uh, just the settings the, the what a super a super special effects budget is, is not an answer Some for of a the great settings, film. Yes, but I'm, I'm it's gr- actors and character and the ability to to create that on a small screen. Not everything translates to a screen. Absolutely, and that's why we're here, and that's why we have a book show, book this audio book, audio book drama and podcast. This is why we're on a book show. This- and you know what? Sometimes people need to do turn off your television. That's right. Turn off your television. Turn off your television. Read the book. Or listen to the book. I, I can see this. Uh, the, the problem with Ron Howard, he, he kind of fragmented with, oh, we're going to have a book and then a movie and then uh, a series and then another movie and then two more series, then another movie. I think someone needs to just do what Abrams did with Lost and say, look, I want a guarantee of four seasons. I'm going to get through book one and two, and then we'll take it from there and go. Like, like you know, but you've a read guarantee the- that it'll go one or two seasons and then take it from there. But you've read the book now, all the seven books, and you can you can see that this isn't something that c- you can't take each of the seven books and make it into a movie. Because there's books in here that just would not translate well into a one singular movie at all. No. They, you have to, the point, you have to make 14 The movies. point isn't to translate uh, when such a project, you know, gets off the ground and they put something, you know, that is written onto a screen. It is a completely different project. So right. it's the point isn't to put all seven books on film. The point is to do a good job of television. And I'm just. I, I think Ron Howard go. wanted a guarantee to put all of it on film and he wanted it to be his magnum opus. Okay. But okay. What he sh- the way okay. he should have approached it is, look, give us a chance. We're going to do one season of a television show. I want a guarantee of two because we want to complete one story. Right. So let's do two seasons. Right. The first book. Right. And give me the guarantee that I can complete that story. And take it from there and, and reevaluate the project. You know, after. and then I'm sure at that point, HBO, I'm talking to you. Hello, HBO, you know, George R. R. Martin, scriptwriter. We need both you. of you. Take this project. HBO, you will not, you will not regret it.
You know, last week you were talking about, uh, or it was in the last book news, about the New Gods movie that they're coming out with. Right. You know what I found at the bottom of my comic book mountain? What's that? New Gods issue number one from 1972 in near mint condition. I really hope this one takes off. <laughs> For your sake, Paul, I hope uh, so right. too. You might as well get a payday out of this one. <laughs> Wasn't that great a comic, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> Hello, this is Harlan Zink from RadioArchives.com with this week's edition of Other Voices, Other Views. Recent reviews featured at paulthebookguy.com. Today, I'm happy to share with you a review written by Phyllis Johnson. And get out your pencil, because I think this book is one you'll want to pick up right away. If you ever had a shred of doubt about heaven, don't walk, run, to order Heaven is for Real by Todd Burpo. This book recants the amazing story of his three-year-old son's experience with crossing over to the other side and back. Although the details of what Colton Burpo experienced and saw in heaven during three short minutes weren't forthcoming immediately, over the weeks and months that followed, he gave details about seeing Jesus and a heaven that is beyond our wildest dreams. From describing the wings to the halo-like auras seen above everyone, his memories of eternal paradise match those of other children who have also experienced heaven. Amazingly, Little Colton even told his parents exactly where they were at different places in the hospital while he was having his out-of-body experience during appendix surgery. His account of what they were doing and where they were at the time of his visit were accurate. Colton describes Jesus as wearing white with a purple sash and a crown. He even went as far as to describe the stigmata, something that a young child his age would otherwise have no knowledge of. In his words, Jesus had red markers in the palms of his hands and on his feet. What a powerful image to think about. He talks about meeting his great-grandfather in heaven and describes the man's personality. One point in the book that really leaves an impression is his reaction to an illustration of Jesus done by Akin Kramerik, a young Lithuanian-American girl living in Idaho who had been known to also cross to the other side and back. While his dad showed him many illustrations of Jesus, Colton had found none of them to be the accurate likeness of Christ. After his dad pulled up the image the girl had created as shown on the internet, Colton looked at it and said, That's Jesus! That's him! That's the right picture! That image is printed in the pages of the book. Account after account of his retelling details as they came to him are astounding. He talks of meeting a sister who had died through miscarriage, a fact that his mom had previously kept from him. Another observation is that no one is old in heaven. That's a really liberating thought. Most importantly, Colton emphasized that Jesus really loves children. When Colton was asked why he wanted the book to be written, he said, I want them to know that heaven is for real. Heaven is for real is a wonderful read with long-lasting impressions, and it's published by Thomas Nelson. This has been Other Voices, Other Views, a series of reviews recently featured at paulthebookguy.com. And this has been Harlan Zink from radioarchives.com. It's been a blast, folks. I'm Paul the Book Guy. I'm Chris the Book Guy. I'm Greg the Book Guy. See you next week. 
For a list of books and other items discussed on this podcast, go to paulthebookguy.com slash show notes. Paul the Book Guy will return next week. Same book time, same book channel. Spelunker didn't even know her.